fascinating. And, and even the word human, right, is an interesting choice. It's not a, on this side, we're thinking about customers, on this side, employees, but ultimately it's people where we're looking for certain behaviors to change. And they display a lot of the same characteristics, mindsets, where I want to begin to lay the context for our discussion. Um, how do you think about the current mindset, right? Because any change, whether we're planning to, to create change, sustain change, we need to think about how to get their attention. And today the attention spans appear to be shorter than ever. Stress is through the roof, anxiety, a sense of connection, belonging, engagement, you name a survey, and it's probably reaching lowest levels it's ever been at, or, or, or highest level of, you know, it depends on how you look at the numbers. But Angela, give me your perspective on the current uh, state of the mind. Oh, yeah, I could probably, that could be a whole podcast episode right there. <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a few things happening. I mean, kind of the the OG mindset of change, you know, the who moved my cheese, right? Like all, all of those things that we heard about like decades ago, still kind of true, right? Like we, um, our brains, and I know you've heard, probably heard about, um, you know, kind of neuroscience with, with Alex and the team, because we study similar concepts, but it's true, the brain is pretty primal. So when we are under threat and change can be a threat, we often go into survival mode. So um, that means like going into ego, going into self, like I've got to protect myself. I don't care about anything around me. And add a pandemic onto that, uh, you know, some social unrest and conflict and all these other things that are happening around us. I, I believe we are kind of living in survival mode right now. We're just kind of getting past that. So put that in the context of an organization and now you want to change something that is comfortable for me. I'm, I, I think people are more likely to go into survival mode more quickly right now because of the stress. So change can feel like a threat if you don't approach it the right way. And that's really what human-centered design is. It's saying, how do we avoid putting people into survival mode by really taking an intentional approach that's human-based and, and based on um, brain-friendly tactics to help have them maybe pass that stage, right? Like maybe get them to like maybe a little bit of skepticism, but then into performance and actually adopting the change more quickly. So yeah, I, to answer your question, I think we are, um, change was already a challenge and I think it's even more of a challenge now given the pace of things. Couldn't agree more. And we'll give a quick shout out to Alex and DX Learning Team in Chicago. They do amazing work. That's the context, Angela, for your comment. And uh, in terms of the, the current mindset on survival, spoke to Michael Watkins, the author of The First 90 Days last week. And, you know, e even just taking this, this what's happening in the political climate, what's happening with the war, what's happening with the, in the risk of nuclear or economic disasters, you, you compare pound all of those into a state of mind and we're certainly in survival mindset <clears throat> you know I, i've been there over the last year there's been times when i just feel my mind go into how am i going to survive how is this you know financially what does this mean um and how do you get out of it so we're going to put that pause that's context otherwise you're right we're, we're unleashing an entire podcast of its own let's now ask the question of when you think about human-centric design, you know, 
what how does that how will it show up in performance why should the ceo care yeah i mean the the, the easy answer is you know uh, teams that are in survival mode versus not in survival mode just perform differently right um, we talk a lot about psychological safety you know that might be a buzzword to many of the listeners here but um people who are psychologically safe meaning they are able to come to work or come to a space and feel safe to be them, themselves without retribution or backlash from the people around them. Um, that is an indicate. That is a studied indicator of high team performance. Um, there was a, we, we always refer to Google's um, uh, Project Aristotle, which was done back in 2015, a little outdated, but there's been subsequent research that's validated the fact that psychological safety is a key indicator of team performance. So the, that, that's the maybe business case. The human case is, you know, as an organization, you are a container for, for human beings to produce and contribute to your organization. So, I mean, why wouldn't you think about how humans actually function in the context of your organization to understand how to not get the most out of them, but make sure they're in an environment where they can thrive naturally. Um, because I think a lot of times we try to insert artificialness into the workplace. Because if you think about the workplace, it and like in modern times, like indus the industrial revolution is the is the blueprint we have. And we're in a very different time right now. The knowledge economy is booming. Yes, we still have use for machines and things like that and, and artificial intelligence and technology to produce but there will always be humans for the most part behind a lot of those things and so understanding things like how culture actually works how the brain works um, how change actually works is a, a competitive edge and actually i think it's just the benchmark right now like we really need to it's really the the, the bottom of the barrel we we, we need to Think about it as, as table stakes. Well, I like that a lot, and I like that we're aiming to simplify. Uh, we, we had a great discussion a few days ago where we said, you know, operational leaders especially, they don't care about, you know, how your lizard brain works. Like Maybe some are curious, right? Some are curious, but but vast majority have a KPI. And that KPI could mean their job. It could mean quite a few things in their lives, uh, uh, their career, and so on. So you, you, you nailed it. This will impact performance. Bottom line, it doesn't matter how you measure performance. It could be revenue, it could be customer service, it could be safety. By creating psychological safety, you can move the needle on business outcomes. And of course, it's also the right thing to do for your people. I like how you mentioned you're the container. That's an, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, so, so Angela, as we... Now, now let's, let's double click. Psychological safety, I assume wellness in there. We're thinking about um, human-centric design. What are the people initiatives? How do how do we do it? And it could be future state. On this podcast, we, as you know, all the titles are questions. We dare to dream. Well, we look for folks like you who are courageous. So, how do you do it? How do you improve psychological safety? Yeah, it's it all centers back on behaviors. So, if you think about the building of behaviors capabilities, which I do, I think sometimes when you think about building capabilities, we think of like these like technical hard skill hard skills, uh, where I think soft skills are actually the hardest of all skills to build capability around. So, really, it starts with leadership. Leadership is. 
um, they are not the creators of culture, but they are driving, shaping, and role modeling it over time. They're, the, the behavior of leaders tells us what we're giving permission to. Um, it's giving us some indicators of what we tolerate. Uh, and it can either make or break your culture, essentially. So really focused leadership development, pipelining, succession planning, and hiring, like getting really clear about what does a leader look like here, and then hiring those people, developing them, creating a diverse pipeline into leadership, but then also holding them accountable is really important. So that chunk of work, I would consider that an initiative. It's an integrated thing that that touches every part of the organization, right? There's no part of the organization that doesn't have some kind of vision setting, direction setting, strategy, creating influence or, or getting people together to collaborate to, to produce outcomes. And um, there's like the uh, uppercase L in leader and the lowercase L in leader. Everybody can be a leader. Um, so I think that's the other part of uh, another initiative is how do we develop leadership in everybody? So obviously you need your people who are leading the organization to kind of be aligned and, and build, have the highest form of capability, but then how do you build leadership in everybody across the organization and how are, as everybody role modeling and demonstrating the culture you're looking to build, including psychological safety, building safe spaces, facilitating creativity and innovation to get to results. So those, those are just two, but I can give you like 10 more if you let me. No, I think... I think those are great, and 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 Gallup actually, I keep referring to amazing guests I met. Gallup last week talked about, hey, it's all about the manager, stupid. And I know the term manager there. We we, we want to move from that to a leader, which is why we're using the term leader. And we know that the ex employee experience is is greatly defined by their direct, you know, manager leader. Um, so, Angela, maybe we can double-click on that. How do you go from a lowercase to an uppercase? How do you develop leaders? What are the initiatives that can support leaders who are in the survival mode, stressed out, overwhelmed, too many notifications, lots of initiatives? There's no leader in any organization that says, hey, could we have another initiative, please? Could I have another thing to do? Uh, please, s send me more notifications. Send me more emails. So, so. So how do we do and how do we apply human-centric principles? Yeah, the first one is not everybody wants to go from lowercase l to uppercase l. I think we, we forget about that, right? We need really fantastic technical experts, project managers. You know, um, I call them kind of pros in place, right? People who just love what they do. They're brilliant at what they do. But, but somehow, society, from a societal perspective, we've kind of set this expectations, you got to climb the ladder and you've got to get to the top and get to that management position to make more money and get more status. And I think as an organization, kind of just like deconstructing that to say there are multiple paths to fulfillment and fulfilling your purpose as an individual here. And that could look like the uppercase L or that could look like, you know, this program over here, this career pathing where you're continuously learning. Um, about your craft. So I think creating a career pathing program, that would be the initiative, but really focused on really understanding the different paths that are possible within your organization. But there should always be a path. There should always either be a path to learning or to advancement. So I think that's the, the first piece. The second piece 
is creating a, you know, a formal, um, for the uppercase L path, <laughs> creating some formal leadership development programming that is not just curriculum, but is based in things like community building, um, you know, using technology to form micro habits. You know, there's this, you know, great tool that I know of uh, that, that can help with that. And, um, you know, so it's, it's much more than just throwing curriculum at people and saying, do this and you'll become a leader. It's truly a, a development of a program that includes things like community feedback, curriculum, like this, the 70 20 10 model in so many words. Um, I know that's a little outdated, but centering it around experiences and community and having some uh, formal learning surrounding it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, I love talking about data and I love talking about micro experiences. Um, so, so let's go there and, and let's take a quick just a note of what you said. It's not for everyone. So we're discussing now creating a path to develop leaders where it's the right fit. It's the right fit for them. It's the right fit for their career. But also what you're saying is l l let's look at data and, and we're going to dream a little because in my view, when we think about a human centric design, part of that is to understand the human. And how do you understand the human? without looking at the data. The vast majority of human-centric marketing communications is about, hey, where are they at in their journey? And the simplest example would be, you know, you go on Amazon and you look at shoes, and now those shoes are following you wherever you go, as well as all of the communications are relevant about those shoes, right? Because it's around your interests. So, Angela, dream with me. How do you think about human-centric applications for leadership development for the right leaders and looking at data for us to understand their experience. Yeah, it's got to be some kind of uh, fluid flow of information of extracting and understanding where people are in their journey, but also sharing where the opportunity is. Because a lot of the folks that I talk to, because um, I do a culture assessment work, and typically employees are like, I don't even know where to start. Like, where do I even look for opportunity? Who do I talk to? And unfortunately, there's a lot of bias and subjectivity built into our processes without that data, right? Because now you're focused on, oh, you know, I just saw that person in the office. You know, I saw them present. They're amazing. And now you use, use your own bias to determine who's right for which career path. So I think data is really important to cut some of the bias and create some objectivity and realness around what people are actually experiencing. I would love to see, just like from a customer perspective, you have these like avatars or personas that are built in your organization, right? And they're not meant to be cookie cutter, but they're meant to paint a picture of the different profiles within your organization and how that might impact things like leadership development or career development or wellness or any other people initiative you have across the organization. So oh, think about it almost as like, I don't know, you just have like this fleet of profiles and you know that the, you know, the, you know, 35 year old who, uh, you know, isn't selecting X benefits, but is participating in this learning development program wants these three things, right? And then you can really personalize the experience and to your point, communications and initiatives to those avatars and those profiles. When you started talking about personas, the first, when we were getting ready for the podcast, you had me at hello. It was like, wow, that just makes so much sense. I am curious, 
the you just stated hey let's understand their age so their demographics let's let's understand their learning journey could we throw in more could we say let's understand their performance let's understand their collaboration whether it be microsoft teams or slack let's look at their payroll and career and advancement and reviews what if we threw all of the data points that are available inside organization against building the personas so that we can understand them and meet them where they are yes a hundred percent i mean you know you talk about dreaming but like you know understanding who are your like influencers within the organization right like who are the people who have the high social network connection and who are they connecting with and and it's not you know a lot of people are listening to this and, and it sounds like like big brother right like oh so you're collecting all this information about me you know but really it's around being having integrity around that data and using it for the right reasons and really to personalize the experience for the people within your within your organization so yeah i think the possibilities are vast i can just think of like probably a hundred or so data points that you could build into that profile yeah this is where your your and i brains kind of fused and we looked at the universe of possibilities and i'm glad you mentioned the big brother i think it's worth clarifying we are not a suggesting collection of more information we're simply asking to consider the information that's already available so that the employee experience is is enhanced uh, one feature i know within uh, microsoft suite uh, within viva has viva insights where you can see some of the uh, your most influential participants based on their uh, participation in collaboration. And all of a sudden, these are your influencers. What if you begin with your influencers first to create change? You, you know they're already plugged in and, and they're willing to support the organization. Um, it's, it's fascinating, Angela, and I do think often about the hundreds and hundreds of possibilities. How do we... I don't, say, I don't know if the right word is convince. The folks that are listening to this podcast are, are champions for change. Many get it. And now the question is, how do they get internal alignment? How do they communicate it to their executives internally? So maybe l let's chat a bit about that. What would we suggest cha champions of change to do in order for them to be able to bring up the topics of human-centric design and data and personas um, that's not the world they they that this hasn't been their career to date yeah i think the first thing is really having the confidence ar around it um you know i think oftentimes as, as champions of change we um we are the influencers within the organization right we may not be sitting at the executive level for example but um you know, I think doing some research around some of these these tactics and thinking about if, you know, if there was a way, and I know there has to be a way, maybe we can work on this together, but change fails 75% of the time, 75% of the time. That Think about every single organization right now is going through some change, multiple changes, dozens of changes. 75% of the time, you're putting resources, time, money, effort, people towards those changes, and they are failing most of the time. That is what that means. And it's usually for two reasons. One is um, leadership commitment and alignment. So leaders aren't aligned, you know, we're not rowing in the same direction. We have different views or constructs of what we're trying to achieve. And the second one is we're not using brain friendly human centered design 
we're using tactics that provide inputs and outputs, but don't create a, a human or employee experience. Um, we're fo focusing on old traditional ways of doing things. So what I'm, what I, my, 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 I don't know, my narrative of convincing is think about all that waste on the table and let's just spend a little bit more time up front getting really intentional about understanding our people, understanding the personas we have within the organization, what their motivations are, what their aspirations are. And let's take the time to really tailor our approach and, and create a feedback loop so that we don't end up at the end of this at 75% and we have millions of dollars wasted and energy and time wasted. Again, I wish we could do like a cost analysis comparison of what that actually means per your initiative. So maybe that's something you can do to say 75% chance that this is going to fail. That's what that means in dollars. But if we have these two things, human-centered design and aligned and committed leadership, we have a really good chance of reducing that by 50%. I, I love that. I, you also mentioned the seat at the table, right? Maybe if you are applying human-centric design and you are bringing data and you are leading in a very different way your effectiveness of, the, of, of change, do you think the folks that are running change should have a seat at the table, at the executive table? Yeah, 100%. I, I think we've been advocating for that for a long time. Um, and, you know, what does having a seat at the table mean? I mean, yes, if you, if you work in a hierarchy, that might mean sitting at the, the executive table, right? Um, but I think what's most important is that you just have access to the different layers within the organization. And I think creating a, the culture of the organization really matters when it comes to change. So if you're being, you know, buffered, um, asking for what you need, you know, basically saying again, 75% of change fails. I really want to give this the best shot. So how can you start to advocate for yourself is what I'm saying, right? So how can you ask for, maybe it's not to sit on the executive team, but it's, you know, every other week you're sitting in on a meeting or you're presenting your vision or your integrated strategies or, or the things you're seeing. Um, so you can advocate for those things and have that seat at the table, but also being really clear about what you need to reduce that 75% failure rate when it comes to change. It's a shocking number. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the change, this isn't optional for the organization. These are strategic imperatives, the core competency evolution, monster change in the company that maybe is the differentiator for, for survival. Who knows? But this kind of failure rate. Uh, so so where, where I want to go back is uh, the human-centric design. Again, we are talking in the language of marketing, for me at least. And um, here's whether it's change management, L&D, uh, some of the HR initiatives. Um, I actually met the first company yesterday where an L&D team just brought on their first marketer. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, talking to a company where their change management, literally their protocol is to put a change management professional for every initiative in the similar way that you would do in the world of marketing. So Angela, how similar how similar, how much of the world of marketing are we about to bring into this world of change management in order to elevate the effectiveness? It's very similar. I mean, we're talking about experience. So, and that's really what we do with brands and marketing is we're trying to create, curate an experience 
And, you know, I always tell people, like, if I didn't get into uh, the, the field I am in now, I would have gone into marketing because it's the same work. It's you're just working with a different audience and a little bit more flashy. Right. Um, branding, marketing feels a little bit more flashy. But, yeah, I think when you talk about change within an organization, it's it's got to follow the same process, really. Everything from journey mapping, understanding what's the journey of your customer. Um, there's actually a, um, there, there's a report called the Edelman Trust Barometer. I don't know if, Adam, you're familiar with that. Some of your listeners might be. But um, one of the findings, so they, they study kind of this uh, construct of trust. And like, who are people trusting generally at any given time? Usually it's like government, right? It was government. Uh, now employers are starting to actually take the lead. So people... From, think about like also media, right? Media is another one of those like trust, uh, you know, profiles. Like, who am I trusting generally? Media and government have dropped, and employers and um, businesses have risen during the pandemic. So that basically means that you know this contract of trust. Not, not only is it a responsibility for us to kind of get this right, because now people are trusting us more. Um, but organizations are a brand. And people are your highest, you know, your biggest stakeholder, basically. So how do you use those marketing tactics? Again, not to, con- you know, we're not trying to just deceive anybody. We're not trying to be media. But we're using these tactics to understand how the brain actually works, how we um operationalize things like loyalty and connection and belonging because you'll notice also with media there's a lot of leaning now towards community community is a a heavy tactic right now and it's also becoming a heavy tactic it should be a heavy tactic for organizations so i think we have to view them in parallel and really i would love to see more like cmos and chros partner together and a head of IT or head of technology, like that is like the 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 the, the triangle that we need to to create within organizations for integration. You, you literally just that's a, that was that was my next question. I was about to say, Angela, let's talk about a future function of how it's going to operate because the current capabilities, right? Um, you know, they fall short for what we're trying to accomplish. So, is this a CHRO team that gets? additional resources? Is this truly a merger of CHRO, CMO, and uh, CIO, CTO? And then there's also the chief learning officer. There's also chief people officer, right? And I can go on and on. Culture officer, right? So what what do you think is the ideal, is the optimal? I know right now it's so difficult to say, right? But do we replicate a CMO office? in the future pointed pointed internally i should say L- look at me i can't even f- i can't even phrase the question i know <laughs> what does it mean i don't know what is right well gosh i have really maybe taboo perspectives on this topic and i'd love to hear it I, i'm gonna stick to my guns i you may you may disagree with me but i actually think the chro role will go away um there is no we are we are advancing so quickly on people operations that I think it's all going to be technology and program driven. And that can be done by AI, that can be done by a technology, that can be done by a program manager. 
I honestly think we don't need a executive level HR person. Um, maybe you need someone who's specific around like legal, right? Like there's some very like technical things, but does that person need to be at a, an executive, sitting at the executive table? No, we need more integrators. We need people who understand business and can connect the dots between these things to create an experience, who have excellent leadership skills, who can bring people along. And I am convinced that's, you know, kind of a, someone who has background in either organizational behavior, um, you know, I'm an IO psych, um, I have an IO psychology background, or someone who is um, focused on change management is more like, I don't know, air traffic control integrator is, is that role. And they're able to pull on highly skilled technical experts like a CMO, like a CTO, um, into the conversation to create the outcome that we need from a people perspective. I also don't believe we should have like chief diversity officers or people who are centered around things that culturally need to be integrated into the fabric of the organization. Either, you know, those people are fractional and they're there for a certain period of time to build the capability and then they leave. Or um, you have a very focused effort on beefing up and muscling up your leadership team to be able to, for example, be inclusive leaders or demonstrate behaviors and leadership and be held accountable for behaviors and leadership that get to the culture initiative that you're looking to build. <laughs> That's my perspective. Let's take your thesis into a uh, application. So chief revenue officer says, hey, more revenue, right? More revenue, uh, l let's create a series of change management programs that can help us accomplish that. They go to a program manager who has leadership abilities, who is an integrator. That individual or team now engages the CMO from a, we're looking for content, visuals, we're looking for our muscle to create great and engaging human-centric content. Then they're going to the CTO, CIO, saying that the kind of data that we're going to need, the kind of delivery mechanism, we're going to, here's what we need from that. And then this, this, this team, this team is now able to come back to the chief revenue officer and say, here is what we propose. Here is how we're going to execute. And uh, let's go. Yeah, pretty much. And there might be somebody who, you know, because I think there's hierarchical, hierarchical structures and there's flat structures. So the, the, the organizations that feel more comfortable with hierarchy, there may be a person over that that then reports to the executive team. But I don't think that person's an HR person. You know, I think they're someone who has worked across many facets. They're kind of a business partner of sorts who or an integrator that I I can't think of a better term than an integrator. Um, you know, I see a lot of roles like chief of staff popping up. And that is kind of for the, the best chief of staff that I've ever been, uh, um, in a working relationship with was like, as a chief HR officer was my partner in crime. And this person was an integrator. We were both integrators and actually probably just needed one of us <laughs> because we were both doing a lot of the similar work. Um, but that's really like chief of staff kind of maybe times, maybe times a few, you know, additional technical skill sets like change management, human centered design, organizational behavior leadership, that that's the profile. 
that I think would oversee that team and maybe like manage the portfolio of change happening from a strategic standpoint. Well, I think that's awesome. That's a great perspective. It's it's another thesis for, for the world to consider because the change, what we're taking on here is certainly complicated. It's versatile. It's across functions. We need to think completely different, um, yet learn from things that work. Right, they work in other industries. We keep coming back to marketing and advertising. Um, Angela, um, amazing conversation. So, one last question again. You know, for folks that are listening, L and D, change management, they're an HR, innovation, operation. They are the internal champions. What would you suggest that they do as a as a step one if they're inspired by this conversation for them to continue continue their journeys for them to continue to wonder how to um you know how to create more effective change yeah i would just say be an integrator uh you know find ways to cross boundaries and lines within your organization um be somebody who uh can connect in maybe maybe at first it seems like um unnecessary ways like sometimes it's like well why is the it person and the hr person talking they're not even the same group uh, break those boundaries. Uh, start to realize that actually we're just a big community in an organization and everything needs to work together. So I think just um, continuing to cross boundaries and be, being an integrator within your organization is the first step. Break the boundaries, you guys, whomever is listening in. Angela, this has been an amazing conversation. I appreciate you jumping on. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate you. Okay.